Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Kevin Chilton, Explorer Chair of Space Warfighting Studies at the Mitchell Institute Space Power Advantage Center of Excellence. And welcome to our Shriver Space Power Forum Series. We're pleased to have Congressman Jim Cooper, the Chairman of the Subcommittee on Strategic Forces of the House Armed Services Committee with us today. In that role, Congressman Cooper leads the bipartisan subcommittee responsible for oversight of our nation's nuclear and space forces. He's also one of the co-sponsors of the bill that established the United States Space Force in 2019. Congressman Cooper is also a member of the Committee on Oversight and Reform, the House Budget Committee, and the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence. Welcome, Congressman Cooper, and thank you for making time to join us today on this forum series. And if you will, I'd like to kick things off by giving you the opportunity to give everyone some opening thoughts and remarks. Thank you, General. I'm deeply honored to be with you, General Deptula, and everybody at the Mitchell Institute. I hope I can be of value today in my comments. Um, first thing is the Biden budget on defense. It's actually pretty darn good. In fact, it's kind of amazing, particularly for a Democratic president. In the space area, it's $5 billion more than we had last year. In the nuclear area, which is also a vital importance, it's also uh, dramatically increased. So uh, President Biden gets it. Uh, it's a good, strong pro-defense budget. And that's a little bit harder sometimes for Democratic presidents to produce than uh, the other party. So uh, that's the good news. Now, the question is how we're going to spend it. So um, Congress is uh, fully engaged. I think we'll pass our uh, budgets this year on time. This is an election year. It's already fraught politically. But I think that it, at least when it comes to money, the Defense Department is looking pretty darn good. Let me talk about space in particular. Um, I don't want to put too fine a point on it, but uh, just a few years ago, uh, really, we'd uh, fallen into a, a period of, of extreme laxity. Uh, we were reliant for assured access to space, you know, which is the mantra that we always had to say we were guaranteed. We were reliant on the Russian RD-180 rocket. Now, think today in the Ukraine situation what that would mean for us. Now, it's true you can buy a lot of them, put them in a warehouse, and maybe that gives you assured access to space. But we were almost completely reliant on their technology for a few decades there. And that is a critically dangerous situation for a superpower to be in. So uh, fortunately, and thanks largely due to the whims of billionaires, uh, we have not only weaned ourselves from the RD-180, uh, we have established our own capability and the most important thing economically is we've lowered the cost of launch by something like 85%. That's amazing. Uh, that was undreamed of when you were at Stratcom Commander. Uh, it's really a fantastic marshalling of the private market with government subsidies and the military uh, know-how to get these, this job done. So that's, that's extremely important. Uh, there are other things that we need to be thankful for. You know, way back in 2002, I think it was the Rumsfeld Commission report that warned us of a space Pearl Harbor. Well, that's a pretty dramatic warning. And what did Secretary of Defense Rumsfeld do about it? Immediately disband Space Command, like, give me a break. And when you were a STRATCOM commander, it was under your purview. And it was General Hyten who woke us up when I became ranking and chair to say that, as much as he loves space, he could never make it more than third or fourth priority. So we started looking into it, discovered that the Pentagon had 60 naysayers to disapprove any satellite and hardly anyone who could give approval, even the SegDef. 
So that's a crazy situation. And it's actually one that I'm still worried about right now that we may even have more naysayers today with the Space Force and Space Command than we did before it was stood up. So we've got to focus on things like that. I'm particularly concerned about speed of acquisition and most important of all, quality of acquisition. As General Hyten again pointed out, uh, we put up way too many big, fat, juicy targets in space. Uh, their NRO did the same, but at least they did it a little bit more efficiently than the Air Force. And we got to have a resilient, uh, survivable architecture that can meet all of our needs. Now, I always point out that one of the greatest gifts to the world in all human history is the GPS system. Our satellites, which are miracles and which were opened up, I think, after the Korean airliner was shot down. President Reagan opened up the architecture to the world. We didn't even think of charging for this absolutely vital, life-saving, military-enhancing service that is free and available to the entire world. But too many of our enemies and allies are trying to duplicate that service, and that makes our satellites more vulnerable. In fact, recently, one of our near-peer rivals threatened to have the capability to take out all of our GPS satellites at once. So we've got a lot to be alert to, a lot to be aware of. I'm thankful that Congress acted and acted in time to wean us from the RD-180 to allow our space professionals to have their own service. And I, I kind of view myself as the guardian of the guardians because I'm so proud of the Space Force being stood up. I'm so proud of Space Command. I think General Raymond, General Dickinson are doing an awesome job, but it's still in its infancy. And I'm worried about the Air Force trying to exert uh, too much control and in some cases to stifle the development of the Space Force, because I think it, the future is unlimited. We know that the universe is unlimited and we have to have not only the best capability, but by far the best capability to make sure that we achieve our national goals and really for the benefit of the entire planet. So thank you, General. I'm honored to be with you today. I hope I can be of use to your audience. That's outstanding introductory remarks, uh, Congressman, and you will certainly uh, be long remembered as one of those who stood up to support the stand-up of the Space Force and uh, reestablishment of U.S. Space Command. So thank you for that. You know, over the, the past several months, one of the comments you've uh, re reiterated numerous times in hearings is that the Space Force has to be tougher, faster, and bolder. And in some ways, the Space Force... Uh, cannot be bold enough, I assume. But what areas do you see the Space Force uh, needs to be more bold in and where they need to make improvements uh, to achieve the tougher, faster uh, adjective that you, you, you described over? Well, I would say that um, the first step is for the military to catch up with the private sector because so much of the innovation has come from innovative small companies, sometimes in California, sometimes even in New Zealand. And it's amazing what they've come up with. But we really need to go beyond that. In the most vital areas of national security, we pride ourselves on being decades ahead of commercial development. But that really means having folks who could be billionaires uh, sacrifice uh, that lead technologically for the benefit of national security. And I hope we can find that in space. There are other things. Um, there was a general, you and I both remember, General Quast, who was something of a renegade, he talked about cislunar space. And a lot of people didn't even know what he was talking about. But now the Chinese already have a base on the other side of the moon. Uh, we finally put the James Webb telescope and the Lagrange point on the other side of the moon. But we are slow getting there. And we're slow thinking of the big uh, things. Uh, NASA, in some ways, has been ahead of us scientifically. So 
we don't know what the future will hold, but we need to get there first, whatever it is. And I'm worried that we got too relaxed. Uh, we got too focused on the war on terror. That was important, but not as important as this strategic imperative of making sure that space benefits all mankind. Thank you for that. Uh, if I could touch a little on, more on cislunar space and keeping track of what's going on between the Earth and the moon and in lunar orbit uh, and the Lagrange points, as you point out. Uh, back when I was commander of uh, Stratcom, we used to say, if you really wanted to hide something in space, just put it, put it in lunar orbit because no one's looking up there. And as you point out, the Chinese now have a presence on the lunar surface and a Lagrange point. Um, US Space Command has been given an area of responsibility starting at 100 kilometers above the surface of the Earth and up, which would include cislunar space, of course. Uh, but you know, the proximate threat seems to be to our, our orbiting or low Earth or Earth orbiting satellite constellations, whether they be in low Earth orbit, medium Earth orbit, or geosynchronous orbit. Uh, how do you, what are your thoughts on how the uh, surveillance of the domain beyond geosynchronous out to cislunar, who, who ought to be doing that? Uh, what investments need to be made? And is there an opportunity to share that responsibility with an organization like NASA, who certainly has an interest in safe transit between the earth and the moon and for future habitation uh, exploration plans they have for the surface of the moon. Well, cislunar is fun to think about, but it's still largely the realm of science fiction and we need to work with whoever we can, NASA, you name it. And I'm hopeful that the Artemis Accords, for example, will help build an alliance because that's really one of our great strategic strengths is our ability to befriend the rest of the world and have them be on our side. So there are huge opportunities there and the technology is dazzling. And, you know, right now it's uh, hard for humans to go up there for any length of time. So we probably need to be practically more focused at LEO and MEO and GEO, things like that. But um, remember that the closer orbits are also more under threat from ASATs. And both Chinese and Russians have used ASAT capability to devastating effect, not only in the speed of their lethal attacks on satellites and so far their own satellites, but also the debris causing result of that, which could so pollute certain key orbits. Because remember, space is not unlimited. Space is infinite, but the most usable parts of space, like the Lagrange points, are somewhat, or in fact, dramatically limited. And once you launch 100 satellites on a single um, rocket, and once you have networks of, you know, many companies are already applying for 30,000 satellite uh, licenses at a time, space is getting very crowded, and we all need to be improving our space situational awareness because. To be able to see things down to 10 centimeters in size probably isn't good enough when a fleck of paint at 17,000 miles an hour can be like a bullet. So in fact, a hundred times faster than a bullet. So we've got to really realize the lethality of space. Uh, it is clearly the most inhospitable place um, anywhere for human uh, behavior. And that is the same for our satellites. So true, I, and I can, <clears throat> I can resonate with that comment about it in how inhospitable it is. Um, the, recently, the administration released their US National Space Priorities Framework, which appears to focus the Space Force more on operating as an enabler and support force versus a deterrence and warfighting force capable of independent operations as stated in Title 10. I was wondering if, if you might share your thoughts on 
this, the National Space Priorities Framework? Do you, do you see this as a shift in policy or do you see it um, <clears throat> being in line with uh, where the Congress is with regard to adjustments to Title X? Well, uh, to be candid, I heard uh, Secretary Kendall make those remarks at the Space Symposium in Colorado. Uh, they worried me at the time, uh, they worry me now, because it could all be benign and benevolent, but with the history we have with the Air Force and the difficult birthing process of the Space Force, I'm worried. Uh, we need to make sure that the mother doesn't stifle the child here. Um, one day the Space Force will be fully independent. I look forward to that day. In the meantime, we need to make sure that old Air Force thinking, which was even resistant to drones, and certainly wasn't fond of the Space Force. As you reminded me before, before the broadcast started, when you were a STRATCOM commander, you had space and cyber under your control. And now those have largely been removed. A no service can do everything. And the Air Force has its handful with piloted aircraft and other duties. So we need to make sure that we uh, are able to promote and develop our space professionals as they should have been. And the Air Force was not taking care of that. On so many generals lists, the space professionals may have had one or two spots and 30 plus went to, uh, you know, fighter jocks. So that's fine, but that's the old day. Today, drones and autonomous aircraft will probably rule the day. And space is absolutely essential for every human activity. So you can get into a lot of curious doctrinal disputes about whether space should be completely independent. Certainly it's uh, the infrastructure of infrastructure. Almost all human activity on Earth is dependent on space in one way or another, whether it's position, navigation, or timing. And sometimes we forget just the timing component. So it's, it's absolutely vital that we have the technology and the uh, research uh, focus. And everyone's jealous of you know, everyone else's budget. But uh, this is a time for a space force to live up to its maximum potential for the good of the planet. As I mentioned with the GPS example, we are a benevolent power. We never even thought of charging. We probably wouldn't even have to in, have an income tax in America if we had a, a few penny charge on the number of billions of people who use GPS as a vital service every single day. And it's, it's just one of those transformative moments in human history that the Air Force hasn't gotten sufficient credit for, but we should all be realizing the gift of mankind that the GPS system was. Absolutely, couldn't agree more. Not to mention weather satellites, over the horizon oh. communications for global communications, missile warning, and the other things that we enjoy the luxury of. It's extraordinary. It's really transformed the way young people think. Uh, and that's, that's a good thing. It's my understanding of the Air Force Academy, you're a distinguished graduate, that the top 100 graduates, most of them wanna be in the Space Force. I think that's totally cool. I wish we had the capacity to take more. I've seen it firsthand, the increase in enthusiasm and interest in studying astronautical engineering, for example, at the, at the Air Force Academy. And uh, there is a, uh, I think they're having to turn people away. There's, a, there's such a desire to join the Space Force. General Raymond told me recently that uh, they can be selective in, in their uh, choosing of who comes in, uh, whether it be out of the service academies or uh, ROTC or, or through the local recruiter because they have so many applicants. So uh, they really are getting a quality force built. Uh, so one of, one of the key missions of the Department of Defense and, and the Space Force in particular is, uh, is deterrence. And that requires our ability to both uh, protect and defend our key national security uh, assets from threats that we know exist from both China and Russia. 
but it also would suggest, given deterrence theory and history, that there needs to be a capability to hold their assets at uh, risk at risk as well, to uh, let them know that they could not gain an advantage by attacking our assets with impunity. Um, I was wondering if you could share some of your thoughts on what you think the Space Force should be doing, uh, not only to get after the threats uh, and uh, that are posed against our current constellations, but also if it's appropriate in your view for us to be uh, holding our adversaries space capabilities at risk as well for the purpose of deterring them. Well, I don't want to put too fine a point on it, but um, just a few years ago, we'd let our deterrence capability in space go almost to zero, which is pretty sad. You know, my committee does both the nuclear and the space area. And uh, in nuclear, we're all about deterrence all the time, every day, every second of every day. So it's kind of shocking that we let our space deterrence go almost to zero. Our uh, near-peer rivals, uh, Russia and China in particular, have not delayed their advanced work. Um, and they have already accomplished things that we've let completely languish. For example, in the 70s, we were way ahead in hypersonics. And now the Chinese with their fractional orbit uh, capability and other things, even the Russians, which is you know a country with the economy the size of Italy's, um, have shown amazing uh, advances because they've really focused on that. So we've got a lot of catch-up work to do to uh, reestablish deterrence, to not have the big, fat, juicy targets that General Hyten talked about, and exquisite satellites are wonderful, but we also need uh, other types of satellites, survivable, accessible, maybe disposable. CubeSats are awesome. Uh, it, we've got to do whatever it takes to have a superior capability, and that includes not only extraordinary defense, but also an offensive capability. That's not fun to talk about. A lot of it's highly classified. And where we can, we need to be declassifying things that can help spur commercial development. But we also need to be aware that we should only be funding the US R&D budget. We should not be also funding the Chinese R&D budget. And when they hack our subcontractors in particular, uh, we are just giving them all of our uh, know-how. That's um, something that we need to be increasingly alert to because the threat is ubiquitous and many of our good-hearted, excited technologists at the lower level don't have the funding. At the Space Symposium, I noted that hardly anyone talked about raising venture capital money just so that they could protect their own internal networks. But that's absolutely a vital component that the Pentagon needs to be policing better uh, because uh, without that, as I say, we're funding the R&D budgets of our, our adversaries. So it's, it's something we can do, but it's... we've, we've uh, I'm worried because you know the lethargy and the bureaucratic inertia of the Pentagon better than anyone. Um, it's a wonderful institution. We're still head and shoulders above other militaries as we're seeing the, the disastrous performance of the Russian conscript army. But um, we've got to make sure that we're always challenging ourselves to be the best. And sometimes I worry that we get distracted or we, we rest on our laurels. Thank you. If I could shift gears here uh, to another topic that uh, is in the area of discussion right now, um, is this, the concept of a Space National Guard. Uh, the administration doesn't seem to support um, continuing the kind of the historical relationship, which was between Air Force Space Command 
uh, when it was part of the Air Force and the National Guard. Uh, I was wondering where you stand on this issue as we go forward and uh, how you see this debate developing on whether or not we should have a space National Guard. Well, General, we all know the political power of the National Guard and the Guard is awesome and it's part of the integrated force. I think as we look at our military, we need to look at two things primarily. First on budgets and uh, programs, we need to look at the threat. We need to meet and beat the threat. And on manpower and resources, we've got to look at value added, what really works. And in highly technical areas like space, you know, it's amazing uh, what new personnel designs we should be able to come up with because you might want to have active duty people who are part-time because if you're a smart software engineer out of the West Coast or have other unique skills, you might be able to be a weekend warrior. You might be able to contribute in lots of ways, maybe guard, maybe reserve, maybe active duty. We may need a whole new concept because a lot of these super smart people have long hair and tattoos and nose rings and all sorts of crazy stuff that isn't traditional military, but we need the best talent that the nation can offer, including lots of times uh, first generation or immigrant talent, because uh, half the successful companies in Silicon Valley are headed by new Americans. So uh, I think instead of bringing up old terms, like do we have the guard and you know, the old relationship, we need to think about what really works and what really can give us that 10 year, 20 year uh, leap over anything in the commercial market that our nation needs, that our Pentagon needs to really meet and beat any other threat and to a reestablish deterrence. So it sounds like you would approach this kind of from the bottom up and, and try to almost re-architect the, the way we um, recruit and retain and utilize uh, personnel as guardians going forward and uh, a little less on the lines of organization, traditional organizations. Absolutely. And I've also stressed, uh, I've long admired the Navy model for certain of their key jobs like naval reactors. You know, it's a six, eight year term. Um, missile defense is what now a five year job. Uh, some jobs, it's not punch your ticket, move on after two years. You learn the job right as you're about to leave it. That doesn't work. Uh, we need genuine expertise. And uh, I don't know who the Hyman Rickover of the Space Force is going to be. Perhaps it's General Raymond, but we need... Uh, that sort of um, zero defect, demand for excellence, uh, quick acquisition, superb acquisition, uh, reestablished deterrence approach. And I've long been an admirer of NRO because it's not perfect, but it did a whole lot better job than the Air Force for years. And um, it kind of serves as a control group. Now they had the advantage until the mid nineties of being a secret organization, but in terms of their uh, lack of hierarchy, their relatively quick decision-making, uh, what they've launched, it's remarkable in comparison to the 10, 12 year cycle. And sometimes the utter failure, like we've had with GPS M codes, in 15 years after the satellites are launched, we can't even get ground stations to perform well with their encrypted messaging. So that's, there are several national embarrassments out there that we need to make sure uh, do not happen again. You know, earlier in, in our conversation, you talked about. Uh the importance of commercial space, and particularly for launch. Uh, and I'm sure you were alluding to SpaceX and the Falcon 9 and how that's put the U.S. back, not only in an affordable launch position, but it has allowed us to compete as a commercial launch provider uh, and also in support of our military and national assets. So the partnership has been important for launch. I was wondering if you might comment on 
what you think the opportunities are with regard to our constellations on orbit and partnering with uh, some of these commercial entities. And what I'm thinking of here is, uh, is perhaps an analogy is the CRAF force that uh, Air Mobility Command has with uh, in, in their relationships with our major airlines. And in time of crisis, they have them essentially on retainer and can bring them in to uh, support uh, movement of armed forces personnel around the world with what are otherwise configured as commercial airliners. Um, your thoughts on that? I wish everybody in uniform could go to the space symposium and I wish that they could um, use their imaginations more because one of my favorite definitions of leadership is it expands what you're allowed to think about. And with space, there are no limits. It's incredible the innovation that's currently underway. The innovation that we could currently be using with our Space Force and Air Force and other branches of the military. A lot of these concepts are highly technical, but some of them are just uh, utterly amazing. If I had suggested five or 10 years ago, oh yeah, you can bring a rocket body back to earth and it can nestle back on the launch pad without wings or <laughs> you just thought I was lying or kidding or dreaming or drunk or something. This happened. And one reason it's happened is because Elon Musk has been in a terrible competition with Jeff Bezos and two of the richest people in the world. Um, their hobbies can be pretty productive sometimes, uh, but we shouldn't have had to rely on their hobbies for us to benefit from their uh, technological success. And you know, there are gonna be a lot of failures. And sometimes in the Pentagon, people are failure adverse. Uh, I get so tired sometimes of generals wanting a preview of a hearing before we have the hearing as if they're more afraid of me than they are of the enemy. Like, give me a break. You know, in other committees in Congress, there is no witness preparation. And yet we get so accustomed to that with our military. It's almost like handholding or something, coddling. And I don't want to hurt anybody's career, but people should be able to answer questions like from a reporter uh, off the cuff and do a good job. You know, this is not uh, as difficult as some people make it seem. So it's, it's really a challenge and we can meet and beat this challenge, but it's gonna take new thinking. And sometimes we think too much in the old ways, like it would be a disaster if Space Force becomes transcom. We've got to be much bolder than that. Space is its own war fighting domain. And it may be, we're already halfway toward robot wars already. It may be that the wars of the future are entirely robotic. And wouldn't that be a great blessing for mankind if it was just machine versus machine? And we could settle our disputes that way with minimum loss of human life. But see, I'm worried that people aren't so much thinking in those terms. In fact, if you take a hard reading of Secretary Kendall's speech, it's all whether our troops on the ground are benefited. I've written an article already for a War on the Rocks pointing out that if we reflexively attack ground stations, anytime one of our satellites is attacked, that is needless and heedless escalation of war. Uh, these doctrines aren't developed yet, but we need to be thinking and planning and ready. And I'm worried that we're, we're still not there yet. You know, it's a lot to expect in a couple of years for Space Force to figure this out. General Raymond, General Dickinson at Space Commander are doing a great job, but we got a lot of work to do. And we haven't caught up yet. And I hear a lot of vaporware. I hear a lot of nice plans, five, 10, 20 years out. But we need the capability now. We need it yesterday. And I'm worried that we're not there yet. It would certainly appear that we're in, a, in crisis mode. And the Space Force didn't have, didn't have the advantage that the 
Air Force had of 20 plus years to plan and vision a future and then equip for it and then prove its its uh, theories in World War II before becoming a separate service. So as you point out, there's a lot of simultaneity here that has to go on and uh, it's it's a tough job, but thankfully they're they're getting the, the talent in on board that uh, hopefully they, they will deliver on these things. But see, if, if I go, we, I'm sorry, go ahead, please. Excuse me, General, we have had the 20 years. Look at General Schriever, well, the namesake for this program. He rescued the Air Force rocket program when our rockets were blowing up on the launch pad and nobody knew why. And he figured it out. Thank God he figured it out. And thank God there's a base named for him in Colorado. But see, we, we largely squandered that advantage. And it's not the military's fault. You know, we had with NASA, one of the greatest programs in all the human history, and we largely forgot about it. We didn't bother with it. We gave up on much of big science. And we wonder why there's so few STEM graduates and our employers are coveting STEM graduates. We gave up on big science. And now, thankfully, we're returning to it because without a technological lead, our nation is doomed. And Space Force can help quicken the imagination so that we reachieve our technological lead. Indeed, I, I recall hearing Neil, Neil deGrasse Tyson say in a speech one time, we didn't need STEM programs in the 60s. We had Apollo. And that, uh, to your point, that motivated, I know, people like myself. I grew up in that era to become engineers and scientists, et cetera. So, um, you know, um, just we're witnessing here in the, in the Russian invasion of, of the Ukraine, um, the uh, Ukrainians using commercial satellites. The Starlink constellation has been in the press is being used to support them. Uh, that's kind of where I was going on my previous question. Do you see... Um, opportunities for commercial entities to support uh, the Department of Defense and particularly the U.S. Space Command and, and their national security mission? And, and do you also see some, um, some areas that we need to be cautious about? Uh, sh should we integrate them into plans or, um, or, or future concepts? I'm thankful that Elon Musk gave 5,000 Starlink dishes to uh, the people of Ukraine. Guess what? I bought a Starlink dish for my farm in Tennessee because without that, I have no internet access at a farm in Tennessee. That's pathetic. The United States, forget the military, we have some of the most expensive, some of the slowest internet in the world. Why? We've had a lot of government programs to subsidize it, but the carriers have been slow rolling it out. Back in the New Deal days, we were able to electrify all of rural America in about 10 years using electric co-ops. It worked. We had to create a whole new delivery system to make sure that rural people got their fair share of electricity in this country. We haven't done that with the internet. So technologies like that are available. Elon Musk's engineering genius has made it accessible and affordable. It's remarkable. It's not a perfect system, but it sure beats nothing. It sure beats dial-up. It sure beats the pitiful alternatives that we've had because right now we can't even trust the FCC maps of where internet service is really provided in America. So we've got to get our act together, not just in the Pentagon, but in all the agencies. And one of the big points I want to make is this, we pat ourselves on the back when we get interagency cooperation. And in crisis times, we try a whole of government approach. Well, we are facing autocracies right now that routinely try to use whole of society approaches. And we have difficulty in our polarized times even imagining a group effort like that. 
So we've got to get our game on if we're going to continue to be the greatest power and the last hope of mankind. Thank you. Can I shift back to some of your earlier comments on uh, technological superiority? Uh, you, you pointed out um, how far ahead we were the rest of the world in hypersonic research, uh, even back to the early 60s with the X-15 program that was uh, operating with a person at it above uh, Mach six and a half. And then we just kind of set that aside. And then it always seemed uh, as, as we talked about the potential use of hypersonics for the Department of Defense, I remember the mantra was always, well, it's always just five years away. And next year it was still five years away. And the next year it was still five years away from a technological maturity point of view. I always question if that's because we didn't put enough effort into it. But clearly uh, now we're, we're dusting off uh, what the work we've done in the past to play catch up to both the Chinese and the Russians in this area where we used to lead. Uh, I, I want to ask you your thoughts on directed energy, because that seems to be another technology that uh, is always five years away, or at least that was the mantra in the past. But we have also done some tremendous work in this area over the decades. Uh, is it time to uh, start looking at its utility for some of these missions in space to both defend our assets and also hold at risk our adversaries' assets. So time to invest more in, in the directed energy area so we don't get behind once again. I love directed energy. It's wonderful to think of an unlimited magazine, um, but you know we all know it has some technical limits at least so far, at least until our brilliant scientists figure out how to penetrate clouds or you know, track as precisely as you need to, to burn uh, through what you need to burn through. You know, we've been enamored of other technologies. I love the railgun for a while, the ghost ships is great, but you know, railgun didn't uh, pan out like we thought. Uh, we need to do whatever works. And um, the key thing is sustained development and also testing. You know, so often we think one test a year, we'll you know, learn from our mistakes. Our rivals are testing, you know, a couple of times a month. You know, that takes budgets to do that, takes preparedness, but we need to fail again, fail better, as the playwright Samuel Beckett said. Uh, that's called progress. But so many people in a bureaucracy are afraid to fail at all. So we over-engineer, we gold plate, we delay, we hem and haw. Uh, everybody's afraid to say yes and take full responsibility. So we can do this. We've done it, but uh, we can't afford to get distracted again. And uh, we need to somehow maintain our focus as we achieve uh, the pure excellence that we're capable of. And so, Congressman, what I'm hearing you say is we need to be willing to take more risk in our development programs. Um, and and, um, and you brought up General Shriver earlier. I think it was uh, it was our 13th attempt at launching the first Corona satellite before we finally were able to take mm -hmm. first pictures from space. So there was 12 failures of various causes, either the rocket or the satellite recovery system, whatever along the way, and yet they persisted. One might argue that part of the reason we've gotten so conservatives is because the Congress is also in tolerance of spending money and seeing it fail. I, I would posit, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on it, if, if General Shriver were trying to uh, do the Corona program in 2000 rather than the late 1950s, he'd have been hard pressed to get additional funding after the first failure, never mind the 12th. Your, your thoughts on, on Congress's role well, in incentivizing uh, more risk-taking 
more risk taking, particularly in the development phase of a program. Well, General, no one is going to be more critical of Congress than I am. It is a severely defective institution. But uh, as I mentioned with the Biden budgets right now, we have billions more for all these programs to pursue. And it helps us a great deal if the Pentagon requests additional funding. But so often we weren't even getting the requests. Um, I'm worried it's not just at the top level of budgeting, but it's also within the organization. When I visited some of our defense facilities, I'm hearing that subject matter experts, SMEs, are no longer valued like they used to be. That used to be a position of prestige and honor, and many of them are leaving that military or DOD civilians to enter the private sector, not just to make a little bit more money, but because their work they felt in the Pentagon really wasn't honored. And if we lose our subject matter experts, and in some cases we haven't even retained the knowledge that we once had, uh, this is a shocking development when we rely on individuals and we haven't even videotaped their expertise because there's an artistry, there's a craft to everything that's done. And so we've got to make sure that we haven't allowed our infrastructure to decay. It used to be that Air Force colonels would so fall in love with the project, they didn't even want to be promoted because they wanted to stay with it. But now everyone seems hell bent on promotion. And it's great to be a general officer, but what we really need is the best. And we need to incentivize the best, whatever it takes. And if you want to be the best darn colonel in the world and keep at that position for 20 years, that's fine with me, as long as you're producing value. There's a role for, our, I would suggest, for our uh, senior executive service, SESs and GS workforce as well, which has always been a major part of the acquisition force in both space and air. Um, your thoughts on, on their professional development retention and and uh, how they can participate in this as well. It takes a team, it takes a village, and I'm happy with detailed private sector executives because some of our most capable people are a little bit afraid to be fully SES or government, or uh, but they're part-time expertise. It was Henry Kaiser who helped us build ships in San Francisco, and he's turning them out like a couple a week. Uh, it's amazing what can happen. AT&T, you're at Sandia right now. Uh, they used to lease uh, Sandia for a dollar a year. Like, it's amazing uh, what can happen. But the uh, talent spotting, talent keeping is probably the most vital function of the Pentagon. And different services do it in different ways, uh, different activities appeal. But it's, it's, it's job one if we're going to meet and beat any threat. Well, Congressman, you mentioned that you're, you're, you're a harsh critic of your own body on occasion. Um, is there anything that you think that the legislative branch of our government could do differently to help get at some of these issues uh, that you're, you've uh, articulated that are challenges we need to overcome? Well, one of the biggest issues overall budgeting, and that's a gloomy topic. Uh, nobody likes the dismal science of economics. But where is all this money coming from? No American volunteers to pay more taxes. Most everyone wants more services. And there's been a structural gap there for many decades. We haven't run a real budget surplus since the last three years of the Clinton administration in the 90s. Uh, we seem incapable of even imagining that we could do that again. So pretty soon the fastest growing part of federal government won't be any productive program. It will be debt service on our national debt. And much of that is held by foreigners. So uh, this is a trap we've dug ourselves into. 
with unreasonably low interest rates for a decade or more. We all thought that was the new normal. It was not. Now that interest rates are returning to normal, people are screaming bloody murder, the stock market goes down, but that's called normal. For those of us who survived the Carter and Reagan administrations where interest rates were 13, 14%, uh, we're in a very friendly environment today, even with the higher rates. But people get so accustomed to two or 3% car loans or mortgages, they think that should always be the case. I wish money were free. It is not, it will never be free. It's an illusion. And if we're gonna budget for the military, we've got to wake up to these economic realities. So we, you would, we have to consider inflation when we budget for the military to make sure they get the, well, the structure they need. Inflation is a hidden tax, but we also need to figure out how to pay for these programs. And we need to remember that the only part of the budget we don't set is the military budget because it's threat-based. Our adversaries are making us spend more money. And we as patriotic Americans should be willing to pay whatever it takes for whatever program, whatever testing pace we need to have to meet and beat the threat. But that also means efficiency. And you know, people are always worried about uh, waste, uh, fraud and abuse in, in military spending. But most of it is properly and well spent. But there have been some egregious examples that have um, dampened the taxpayers' enthusiasm. So uh, as I say, anything is possible with a military budget. If it's worth it, we're going to pay for it. Uh, but we got to make sure it's worth it. Well, thank you, Congressman. And before we go to question and answer, I want to thank you for your service in the Congress and as chairman of this really important committee. And if I could share my own experience, was it was an incredibly bipartisan body uh, when I had the privilege to testify before. It uh, didn't matter which side of the aisle was it chairing at the time. It, it, it was all about doing the right thing for national security and uh, for the interests of our people. And uh, thank you for your service in this role as the chairman of the strategic uh, subcommittee of the House Armed Services Committee. Very kind, General. Uh, the House Armed Services Committee and the Senate Armed Services Committee have been two of the most bipartisan parts of Congress. And I'm thankful for that and I hope it will always continue. I do, I do as well. And now I'm gonna ask um, my colleague, uh, Dan Rice, if he would help us with the Q&A section of, of the forum today. And uh, Dan has been tracking the uh, texts and questions that have been coming in. So over to you, Dan. Yes, sir. Um, so I would ask that if any of our viewers right now have a question, you can use the raise hand function uh, to raise your hand and I will call on you so that you can ask your question. Um, but first I've got a couple written questions to turn to. So this one comes from Colt Simmons, and he asks, since 1947 to build up national and community support for over 435 congressional districts for USAF missions, the USAF over time embraced the Air National Guard and the voters in those districts. It appears now active duty US Space Force leaders are not learning the lessons of congressional and community support for a space guard by disallowing formation of a space guard. Those of us working in and supporting the US congressional community would appreciate your perspective and comments. I mentioned earlier, the political power of the guard is immense uh, and it's a, performs a super valuable service, but space is pretty technical. And when we have a shortage of STEM graduates anywhere, we need to make sure that the space force, which is pretty heavily STEM uh, developed, is able to uh, attract those folks because it's all about value added. 
if you're a guardsman in whatever state and you can really make the space force better and stronger, awesome. We should figure out a way to make you part of that service. Uh, and regardless of the title, because it really doesn't matter to me whether you're active duty, guard or reserve. What matters is whether you're helping America. And we think in these old fashioned bureaucratic terms, uh, they may have worked great in 1947. Uh, this is 2022. And we've got to up our game so that we are drawing on the talents of all Americans and not just looking for folks who want to be what they think of as, you know, a part-time weekend warriors. All right. The next question we've got is from Chris Shank, who says, as we've seen with the conflict in Ukraine, commercial imagery satellites can provide significant military and intelligence value by providing transparency to Russian aggression and possible war crimes. Further, this insightful intelligence is unclassified and shareable to partners and allies. What are your thoughts on this revolution in national security affairs? It's fantastic. Uh, Thomas Friedman, the columnist, has called this World War Wired, as literally everyone on the planet can tune in and be horrified by what's happening. And the world uh, doesn't necessarily have a vote, but they have strong opinions. And it's done more to shore up NATO. It's even gotten Switzerland off of the bench. It's stunning. Germany is now actually having a real military budget for a while. You know, it's, it's extraordinary what's happening. Sweden and Finland may join NATO. This is, you know, an incredibly powerful thing, commercially available satellite imagery. Um, but there are other technological leaps that are just fantastic. I'm fond of the company Relativity Space that can 3D print a rocket. Who even knew that you could metallic print something, what, eight, 16 feet in diameter with greater structural strength? It's extraordinary what's out there. And that's why I encouraged everyone already to go to the Space Symposium, because you not only see the imagery advances, but advances in so many other areas that might seem irrelevant today, but could be of vital importance tomorrow. Uh, our next question comes from Professor Bonnie J. Dunbar from Texas A&M University, Aerospace and Engineering Department. So she says, we have a number of SME faculty who have formed a Space Force group supporting the Air Force and our hypersonic research. We also have expertise in SDA and other topics. How can we best help and connect our expertise to the Air Force? Well, um, Aggies don't need any lesson of how to connect militarily. <laughs> Y'all are one of the most connected, but I like your advertisement for your capability and Aggies are awesome. So, um, but we need all the universities in America, including Texas A&M, to make sure that we have the uh, world beating capability uh, and really world uh, uh, helping capability because um, almost all the world is peaceful. There are a few nations that are uppity and angry. Uh, hopefully the nations of the world, including the non-aligned nations like India, Brazil, places like that, will get off the bench and even go with Switzerland and say, hey, we want freedom. Uh, we want opportunity for our people. We want uh, what America has to offer better than any other nation on earth or in the history of the world. And um, we need to see technological advances, not as so much weapons systems, but world improvement. Because, uh, you know, we years ago changed the name of our Department of War, Secretary of War to Department of Defense. We're primarily a defensive capability. We primarily rely on deterrence to help the world. 
And that has worked pretty darn well for many, many decades. We need to make sure that we don't fall down on the job and Texas A&M can certainly help us do that. Uh, our next question is from Emily Stewart. With Netflix's Space Force series combined with most strategic communication about the Space Force and US Spacecom writings confined to esoteric publications, what is the best way to educate and inform the American public on the necessity of defending the space domain? Well, um, Space Force certainly has been open to ridicule. I blanched when uh, President Donald Trump saw it as a new shiny object and really didn't know much what he was talking about, but he was excited. Uh, but that helped us get it through some uh, Senate votes that we were otherwise unable to get. Um, the technical side is largely confined and we could open up some of that. Um, space situational awareness is probably one of the most important things we can liberate. It's supposed to be in the Department of Commerce already. It's supposed to be the air traffic controller for the world. Uh, we've been slow transferring that capability. Now the military always needs to have even better capability, but we should have done this years ago. Uh, we are the trusted source for the world, even our nuclear rivals. You know, trust when we say their satellites are in danger or when their rocket bodies are falling, who knows where on earth. Uh, but we've got to improve that capability. And it's not what it should be. Some private commercial companies are leapfrogging us. They are uh, you know, buying locations around the world that help better than our Air Force or Space Force has been able to do to track things. Uh, we need world-class uh, capability in this regard. And this is one of the many areas we've let our capabilities languish. This one comes from an anonymous attendee, and it is, what is your thoughts of the addition of nuclear thermal propulsion as a defensive measure to protect and defend satellite systems? I'm technology agnostic. I want whatever works. Uh, and we know that we can keep a nuclear safe. It's not, you know, people shouldn't get hyperventilated about it. Um, uh, when properly done, as it's done on every one of our nuclear-powered submarines and aircraft carriers, there's no risk at all. Uh, what is a problem is when you take it for granted or treat it routinely or carelessly, and then it's a problem. But uh, whether you use, you know, polonium or something exotic to have a <clears throat> perpetual propulsion in space, it's, it's not a problem. It shouldn't be an issue. And I've got one here from William Sorensen, and there was a couple questions kind of related to this. Um, so his question is, with the administration banning ASAT operations testing, what are your thoughts on cyber counterspace as a legitimate avenue to hold adversary assets at risk? Oh, cyber is amazing. Uh, and no one really knows the dimensions uh, of it. Uh, I am thankful that in the Ukrainian conflict, the Russians have not been 10 feet tall as we feared. And we've been able to harness, you know, all these hackers around the world to help, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, leverage their capabilities to get inside the Russian defense establishment. So uh, that's great. And that shows again how our allies are our greatest strategic strength. It's our friends around the world because they have immense capabilities and we're stronger together. And that's a very powerful thing. So cyber is awesome. Its dimensions are still being understood. And as new chips are developed, that will change. As quantum comes, which is really the path breaking thing in which we must be first in, 
that will completely change everything that we can imagine. Um, it's like AI. Those are the two major transformative technologies that we need to get on board with. And that's AI in particular is going to make these robot wars much more uh, feasible. So hopefully we can minimize human casualties. Our next question is from another anonymous attendee. And it is earlier you said that you think things are too classified and things need to be more declassified in order to have deterrent effect. What do you think? Or why do you think it's taking so long to review the programs for declassification? And what can Congress do to expedite this process? Here's where bureaucracy kills us. You know, we have trouble even hiring people. The delays just to join our Intel community are staggering. It can be a year or more wait. Meanwhile, these hot prospects are being offered great jobs at private companies and able to start work, make a lot of money. Uh, we cannot allow our own bureaucracy to strangle us. Part of it is there are very few people who have sufficient clearance to really know what's doable and not doable. Everyone's scared of their own shadow. You know, it's a risk averse culture. I sometimes call it the bank teller mentality. That's when you get punished. If your teller is long and short, it's not right at the end of the day. But if you make the most brilliant loan in the world, you won't necessarily be rewarded. So uh, that's the trouble with bureaucracy. And Civil service reform is probably should be one of our top priorities. Um, you know, it's a difficult issue because humans are uh, not robots. <laughs> humans deserve all kinds of uh, help and protections, but the overall uh, teamwork of the Pentagon's got to work better than it's working today. Our next question is from Shay Delutis. And it is Ellen Lord testified recently that the defense industrial base was limited in providing innovation due to government personnel reluctance to utilize the authorities provided by Congress and the FAR. What can what can be done to encourage and support these individuals to embrace all of the authorities Congress and the FAR have provided? Well, we're at a point now in our country's history, we're an aging empire, and we have so many laws that it's difficult to even read them. Uh, General Hyten went back and looked at his authorities, and he was kind of amazed at what he had. And he has a special vantage point, having been head of STRATCOM and vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Uh, but some of the laws are so darn complicated and out of date, and you could put the you know Defense Department 5,000 acquisition regulations in that category that we've had to bypass them so many times, there's almost not enough uh, law left to know where the loopholes are. Uh, I think every Secretary of Defense has pioneered some sort of acquisition improvement study since 1947. And yet you know, we still seem to be slow, certainly behind the capabilities of our uh, near peer rivals. So um, this can be solved, it's not gonna be solved overnight, but it takes men and women of goodwill and energy and insight to figure out ways to uh, get it done. Uh, budgets are sometimes an obstacle, but oftentimes it's our own red tape. Uh, let's reduce that red tape. I've long advocated that Congress have a spring cleaning. Why don't we repeal half the laws, especially the stupid ones? But see, we oftentimes don't know our jurisdictions well enough to know which laws are obsolete or old, uh, out of date. So. Our capabilities as our nation are unlimited, but we've got to focus. And so many of my colleagues are just focused on re-election or getting on TV every night and not doing their homework. 
Uh, and the work of government is sometimes boring, it's sometimes dull, but the most important thing we probably need to do is have a new age of recruitment because it's my understanding when John F. Kennedy was president, some of the ablest people in America wanted to work for the federal government. They wanted to move to Washington or wherever the federal government was located. They wanted to do a good job. And oftentimes since then, we've not been able to recruit uh, the best and the brightest of a generation to come to Washington. I'm prejudiced, but too many of our best people have gone to Wall Street. Too many people are in finance, hedge funds. That seems to be where the money is. And uh, they're not necessarily making our country stronger as they do that. Well, uh, Congressman Cooper, I'd, I'll, I'd like to use the uh, host's privilege here and, and uh, bring us to a close here with uh, perhaps a, a, a bit of gratitude and, and, and give you opportunity for some closing remarks. Um, again, I, I want to thank you for your leadership. Um, you know, you mentioned we, we, General Schriever was thinking about this in the late 50s. Indeed, he was. But we had policies in place since 1982 when Air Force Space Command stood up which prevented us as leaders and even as junior officers to talk about space as a warfighting domain. And I think every military person knew that at some point that was going to happen. Uh, but we lived in, um, in a hopeful world, uh, forgetting that our adversaries get a vote. And they certainly voted in 2007 when the Chinese tested their ASAT capability. The Russians uh, put an exclamation point on that recently. And, but it's only been since the last year of President Obama's administration where we've unleashed even the minds of our current guardians to start doing the hard work to write down requirements and what needs to be done and funded to develop a true war fighting capability that will do what, exactly what you said, and that is deter conflict. And um, I reflect on the fact that the Space Force is just over two years old and they've accomplished so much, but. Uh, in history, oftentimes, uh, after one swing of the hammer, we think the nail's driven in all the way. And it's your leadership that continues to, and, and your committees, that continues to keep the focus on the need to continue to advance the ball forward in, uh, in this domain. Because uh, as you've so well articulated, we're behind, and there's a lot of work to do, and a lot of change is required to accelerate that work. So again, thank you for your leadership, for your committee's leadership. And I would also like to then just close by giving you closing remarks here for the last few minutes of, of our session today. Well, thank you, General. I appreciate your kindness. And it's not about me. What matters is whether our nation is always the strongest on earth and by a large margin. We don't want to be close. And I hate it when we let that slip, especially when it's due to parochial reasons. Uh, Congress can be faulted. The Pentagon can be faulted. Services can be faulted. But what matters is learning from our mistakes and doing a better job next time. And hopefully we'll do it quickly and without recrimination, but make sure that, for example, one of the things that worried me most was the Space and Missile Command in LA. So many of the billets were unfilled uh, from you know lieutenant through colonel because there was a bad school system there and servicemen and women did not want to be located in an area with a bad school system. So that one small thing of a bad school system gummed up the works of attracting some of the best volunteers in American history who wanted to serve, but didn't want their kids to be hurt during that service. So sometimes you need to look for the small things, sometimes it's the big things, but no nation in the history of the world has been as great as we are. And we've inherited this legacy 
it should be pretty easy to keep us strong. And that's our job, to keep us strong. I think we're doing it now, but let's do it better, faster, bolder, tougher, and then I'll sleep better at night. Thank you, Congressman. And I wanna thank our audience today for joining us for their participation. And I wanna wish you and uh, the entire group that's joined us today, my very best from MI Space here and, and wish you a, a great uh, future. Thank you, sir. Thank you.